Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Called Podcast. Tonight, one of the most influential bass players of the punk rock scene and a two-time Emmy Award winner for dialogue editing, Kira Rossler. Kira, how are things? I'm fine, thank you. And how are you? I am fantastic. Well, you and your brother Paul are such heavy icons in the L.A. music scene of the 1980s, yet you spent a lot of your early formative years in the Caribbean. How accessible was art while you were there, or did the shift over to punk music not come till you arrived in California? Yeah, I was eight years old when I was in the Caribbean, and it was for three years. So um, I was back here. Uh, you know, my brother's a few years older, but yes, we were both back here and in L.A., when, uh, say, 1977, we went to our first, you know, punk rock gigs and got a hold of the first German single. And we were friends with um, Pat and Paul Bean from the Germans, who, uh, LA, you know, punk band, who uh, went to high school with my brother before they were punk rock, so they sort of led the way for us. Well, how did your playing relationship with Pat Smear come to be? Um, So, again, you know, he was friends with my brother, um, and uh, the only time I really played with Pat was in a version of Twisted Roots. There were three that I was uh, in, and that was the uh, second incarnation <laughs> of that band um, and then we did a sort of uh, uh, you know it was one of those rehash gigs way later and he joined us which was a lot of fun well what was it like playing iconic venues like the whiskey a go-go at such an early age uh, the whiskey, you know, I thought of them, it's funny, because now, of course, you know, these clubs have certain connotations, but for me, you know, I had thoughts about them, like, well, well, which one sounded good? Like, the whiskey had a really good sound, you know, so aside from, like, wanting to play there, just because you wanted to play them, it's a good venue in terms of size, and it sounded good, so, I mean, some of the, the club slash lo- locations just sounded like crap so you know that that made it unappealing um but it didn't have you know although a lot of the bands like the out-of-town band you know the dead boys would come to town or whatever and i knew that you know van halen had come there before us you know you know you knew that bands had played there um even, you know, the concept of the Sunset Strip or, or whatever, I think it's kind of viewed differently when you don't live here in L.A. Like, here it's just, you know, Sunset Boulevard between X Street and X Street, you know. Well, where would you say the best-sounding venue was that you got to play back in the day? I think the whiskey probably was right up there. Um, it was pretty much known. I mean, I shouldn't say known because I don't know if anyone else really thought of it that way. By me, anyway, it was like appealing. Like if you were trying to put together a good set of bands and a good gig, that was certainly, it was good. It also held like, you know, say 350 people, you know. So back then in punk rock, 
that was like about as big of a gig as you could have. It was not a huge scene, you know, like people might think now since Punk uh, Rock's way bigger now than it ever was then, you know. Well, did you enjoy your time sitting in on your brother's band, the DC3? And did you ever expect it would lead to a job offer? So DC3 was not Paul's band. It was Dez's band. Um, After he left Black Flag, Dez started DC3. And we started it together with the idea that it would be a three-piece, a power trio, right? That was what the three was. And it wasn't until I left that I suggested that Paul try to do the three-piece part as a bass player in DC3. And that didn't work because there's a thing about bass players is, like, if you're not a bass player, you don't know how to play like a bass player, in my humble opinion. So, Des and I were practicing uh, DC3, and I had gotten a call from Henry saying, you know, Chuck's leaving the band, you know, do you want to jam with Bill and Greg after practice someday, you know, with, uh, after DC3 practice, and because we all practiced at the same place. And I said, sure, you know, and then I hung around one day thinking it was arranged, but they acted like they didn't know anything about it, but sure, we jammed. And the band, and then they asked me to do it. So it was I mean, they were my favorite band at the time. So for me, you know, it was it was pretty cool that they asked me, and it was you know, but it was difficult. I had to tell I had to quit Des's band. I hadn't been in it very long, and I I felt badly about that. Well, you have such a different style of playing than Chuck did. How much of your input would you say is in those five Black Flag albums? Or did it or was or was Black Flag evolving to that sound naturally anyway before you even got there? Well yeah, I mean yes. Greg I think part of Greg's goal and he was very much of the lead band, uh, you know, was to uh you know, it's it's hard to necessarily put, except for in kind of a musical term, like, you know, he was looking for this sort of, this heaviness. I would describe the difference of me and Chuck's style, if I had to, is that Chuck has this galloping style, which is awesome. I made them, you know, incredibly, um, uh, what's the word, sort of, you know, aggressive in the sort of speed kind of way where it was almost like Greg was asking me to be opposite and lay way back on the back of the bee and, and Chuck would jump on the, you know, jump and jump and jump and I would like lay back and back and back and uh, and he was sort of asking me, you know, to do that. I mean, we'd sit and do these songs and he would go over and over and over again, kind of digging me into what he wanted me to do. So it was very much his um, expression of what he wanted out of those songs um, that I was executing, I guess, in the way that he wanted. You know, it didn't feel very creative at the time for me. It felt like a, a training for the Olympics more. 
physical, you know, very physical. Well, do you like the direction of where Greg has taken Black Flag now? Or, and do you agree with the certain criticisms that he is kind of self-sabotaging the legacy of that band? And what is your relationship with Greg nowadays? So I have not... I saw Black Flag once after uh, they kicked me out. Uh, and, uh, and I found it to be somewhat unrecognizable. Um already like I, I couldn't there was a point where I was playing a song and I didn't know what song it was for a while you know and I hey it's he continued to move and change and that's who he was and is and that's great um so that was always sort of the point was you don't get to dictate what blood as an outsider what blood flag should be that's for Greg to decide um, but I haven't I haven't heard a lot of stuff since then. As for our relationship, I haven't spoken to him in a very long time. Do we you, have a transactional relationship, if you will. <laughs> well, do, do you do you keep in touch with Henry or anybody else in the band? I have had significantly more contact with Henry and Bill than I have with Greg. I mean, it's not it's not a constant, you know, all the time kind of thing. But I mean, Henry will write me a happy birthday email, for example, or something like that. You know, we are very, uh, very cordial, and uh, and Bill and I are cordial and have exchanged. You know, emails back and forth. It's, but um, just like that, I saw Flag the first gig they played, uh, which was fun. You know, to see them do what they were doing. But it, mostly, I just wanted to go down and see Bill because you know he lived out, out of the state and I hadn't seen him in a long time and stuff. And you know, the was well, the funny thing is music and bands and stuff. You know, a lot of it was a social thing, right? The the punk rock scene, and and for me, it was somewhat social. Not that I'm a social person, but the only thing that would drag me out to go see a band then and now would be, you know, someone I, I knew and liked was playing. Would you ever accept the offer to be in any of these offshoots of Black Flag now? Or do you feel that your time has passed uh, with the band? Oh, it's, it's passed for a lot of reasons. I, I think it's, you know, look, Greg's uh, version of it for obvious reasons, you know, I, as they just don't have a relationship, it wouldn't happen. And Chuck, obviously, is the perfect person to do the other one. So, no, I, there's no there's no room for me in it, and, and there's no... I am very much a move on from all that, too. I've been making music since then for 30 years. I, I have no... You know, I found the re even the rehash thing with Twisted Roots, I originally said no, and then their bass player dropped out. And again, it was to see Pat and Maggie and these people in the band. It was to do it for them. It was to, it was the camaraderie of, you know, 
what they needed for the for the for the appearance, not for uh, something I was driven to do. I'll stay at home and make music in my room. The pandemic has been perfect for me. I've been very creative. <laughs> Would you say that you have a, a almost a new album written during the pandemic? Uh, yes. I mean, I've been doing a lot of stuff during the pandemic. I have a couple of solo quote-unquote albums that are unreleased that I'm not uh, releasing is not really, you know, part of my um, makeup. But yes, there's there's a lot of newer stuff happening, uh, both of my own, and I'm working with a friend's uh, music that was, uh, you know, he developed, he wrote all the songs and, and I play on stuff and I may, I'm trying to put together a, a set of them and maybe mix them and, and create a band camp page or something for him, you know, because he's just a prolific, amazing guitar player. So I'm, I'm working with him. So, you know, it's, it's, it's good times because I'm out of work. So it's good times to keep, I have my dogs, I have my music. I don't need anything else. And my husband, sorry. Sorry, my husband, too. What was the initial inspiration behind taking applied engineering? So my, uh, uh, okay, so my um, my major was complicated because of the difficulty in um, getting the major you wanted. Like the, they had, like, like a, what I wanted was a computer science degree but that was a very sought after major and because of that you needed to have a very high GPA to um, get into that so then I tried to figure out a major which would um, you know offer me you know I kind of knew that that like sort of business computing would be a good backup if I wasn't doing um music you know what was going to be the thing of the future right it was going to be computers it was going to be business computing you know i, I didn't want to be a, a physicist i wanted to just have a backup plan so um so the major that i picked really was a you know economics system science so it was like basically half computer science, half economics. And I thought, well, this will get me kind of a little bit towards what I was trying to do. So it was all just a calculation to have a backup to music, which turned out to be what I needed because, you know, I got thrown out of the band right as I was finishing school and had to get a job. Well, then you moved into Dose. And looking back on your time with Dose, do you think that you got to experiment with all the sounds you wanted to in that band? Well, yeah, I mean, that does have a few things going for it. Remember, I was saying how, how in Black Flag it was not a creative time, you know, and so I immediately came out of it to the opposite. It was like, it was all creative. It was a lot of my songs. It was my part to Mike's songs, you know. It was just figuring out how to do a two-bass band. It was... Um, complicated, intertwined, jazzy stuff. You know, it was just all sorts of um, challenges that I, I had kind of been 
missing, trying to be a singer, which was never, you know, something I had done. So a lot of um, new uh, challenges uh, and positive ones uh, and working, you know, with someone I was that close to, you know, all of it were new challenges. So yes is the answer to your question. What do you think of the current artists? Do you actively try to stay up to date with the new sounds? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, I literally sometimes will ask my nephews, my brother, someone else, uh, you know, for a suggestion or what's new or what's good because I have no idea. And occasionally, you know, someone will tell me about something and I'll go, wow, this is cool, you know, but it's it's never something I discover. I wouldn't even know how to discover it. Frankly, someone has to point me the way. <laughs> well, because, look, it's just, my life is very full. When I'm working, which is not been lately, you know, but before, let's say, the end of March, I was working nonstop, you know, 12-hour days, most every day, you know. There isn't a lot of time to go just listen to unknown music, exploring and plus, I do. I work in sound, so my ears are like totally ready for a rest at the end of the day. You know, so so there's. I usually when I work on my own music, it's in the mornings because by the end of the work day, I'm not interested in listening to anything. You know, so there's a reason. It's not. It's not. There's no resistance to the new music. I am not someone who believes that. Um, oh, there's nothing good these days. All the good music was before. None at all. Well, let's move into film now, where you have been working. (laughs) Because you were a part of the amazing sound editing team that won the Oscar for Mad Max Fury Road. What was that experience like? And do you like how that project came came out? Do you like how the final product ended ended up being? Um, So... uh... That was, you know, as a lot of things are, it was sort of a fluke. I had finished a project, and which beat me up, as they often do, especially at the end. And I was actually asked to do The Revenant, which was also a big movie that year. Um, and, I, well, I turned it down because... Um, it was just, it was clear that it was going to be a very difficult project. And I try to avoid things that, you know, look like nightmares ahead of time, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I, I looked at that. It was starting right after I finished this. You know, I needed a break. So I said no to that. And out of, a, you know, pure luck, you know, a couple weeks later, I got a call from a mixer that I, um, I've worked with quite a bit, and he said, look, you know, I'm on a team down here in Sydney, and uh, I want you to talk to these guys, and, you know, and you should get on, on the team. I told them I need, you know, we need somebody like you on the team. You know, he basically put in a word for me, so then I called them, and and we arranged the thing, but basically, it was an Australian crew. There was a specific request for a, you know, stage editor to work, basically, to help feed this mixer who needed to be fed, and uh, and for a, a 
sound supervisor that basically was going to help wrangle the sound effects, which had been a little bit um, spinning out of control by some people's perspective, let's say. You know, I, the politics of it isn't important. So, so two of us from L.A. ended up being hired to go down to Sydney and help push that project forward. So that's how it happened. So it was incredible long hours, like some of the longest hours I've ever worked. We worked, I worked down there for four weeks, and then we, uh, they sent me home for a two-and-a-half-week break. And then at the end, right as I was about to leave, they were like, hey, Kira, how about if you come back for six weeks and work with the director? Now, we were supposed to be creating a final mix, but we did not. So he asked me, they asked me to come back and work with him to edit ADR for six weeks before we then brought the whole thing back to LA. So, you know, the, the project turned into, a, you know, from what I thought was going to be a four week job to a, you know, 10 weeks just to go back into a final mix here in LA for several weeks. And those, uh, those traveling back and forth with Sydney is a, even in business class, which they were kind enough to provide, you get that um, jet lag, whether, you know, no matter how, you, what you do, you know, you get that jet lag. And the weird thing about that jet lag is it doesn't hit you right away. <laughs> Someone had to point me out this out to me. They were like, they were like, you're just hitting that now, you know, and that's like a week into it. But anyways, so... Uh, very difficult, very challenging, wonderful, sweet director, but, he, you know, very challenging guy who wants everything the way he wants it and a huge amount uh, of work on the dialogue side, which is what I was doing. Um, and, uh, and yes, I, I love the way it came out. The music is, you know, really cool. Uh, the composer was a really great guy. And... Um, just in general, I mean, uh, the difficulties, you know, in the mixing stage, you know, which is not, this project is not alone in this, you know, when you've got an action movie and you've got all these great sound effects, the trucks, the explosions and this and that, but you've got this great music score and you want it all to to kind of come through and you want a dialogue to be heard and, and you know, the sound is just insane. But um, I think it came out really great and it, and it was acknowledged by the academy because of that. The, the academy that I just got uh, joined in 2019. Well, what led you into the film world? Uh, another fluke. I was, um, I was in the computer business and uh, my brother was uh, composing music for a student film uh, for a guy who was, I think, still going to USC film school, and but he was starting kind of his own little guerrilla sound company to do what I do, post sound for film and stuff. And I got to know this guy a little bit and, and you know, just bugged him and bugged him to let me come 
work for him and take a huge cut in pay and I'll answer your phones and, you know, do your invoicing and stuff. Just let me come work for you and learn this business. Because, I, you know, the corporate world was really hard. You know, the computers was... It wasn't the computer part, but it was the, you know, the corporate world and, and, and fitting into a pretty rigid kind of hierarchical structure as opposed to what th this is, where even if my work in particular isn't very creative, the industry is creative. So you, you're working with people who just have a different vibe than corporate people, <laughs> let's put it that way. Um so I wanted out, you know, and and he hired me eventually. I took the huge cut in pay, and I slowly got my way into dialogue because it turns out that that boys tend to like to do cars and explosions and stuff. So so it tends to be a little more girl heavy in dialogue, and and in that company, no one wanted to do dialogue. So that's what I tried to learn how to do, and and it's taken quite a while, but the. I thought I had developed a career. We'll see once the pandemic's over whether I still have a career. It's, you know, the industry's obviously taken a really big hit. So there's, there's a, uh, you know, a natural concern right now. Well, do you like to do dialogue editing or is there another path that you've always been interested in the film world? No, I really like it. It's like trying to solve a puzzle it's like how many problems can I solve before the mix basically you know um you've got your your raw production sound with all its innate problems and you can potentially record some ADR to fix some stuff but maybe not and and you have some tools at your disposal to try to fix things and then you you prepare it as well as you can for the mixer and uh you know what i mean it's it's just this it's not i i find some of the other parts of it more intimidating frankly like the effects world you you have this blank canvas that you have to sort of start filling in with what would that car sound like or what would that door sound like and and i just i just don't appreciate that because you're not actually trying to think put what you think it should sound like but what the director thinks it should sound like you know it's a complicated task but with the dialogue side you have a roadmap of what the director wants and you're just trying to make it better, smoother, you know, clearer, you know, there's a little more uh, direct line from from where you are to where you want to be. Was it satisfying to do a film as complex in the sound department as Joker? Or would you say that there is another project that you've done that would be even more complex than that? Well, you know, Mad Max was one of the complexities there was that he, he recorded a whole bunch of ADR, like an incredible amount of ADR, some of which was very much needed because of sound problems, and some of which he's just, he had done a bunch of um, animated movies. So he believed, he, the director I'm talking about, uh, 
that he could improve performance via ADR. So now you have so so you're basically trying to to go through take after take after take after take, you know, syncing ADR which was not recorded to sync to picture and stuff. So that had its own, you know, large amount of complexity. You're managing a big amount of data and you're trying to sort of formulate it into what was ended up being about 85-90% ADR on the, on the screen, which is very unusual. On the Joker, there's almost no ADR, so you're, you're totally up against making the production stuff work, and you know you have a director who doesn't want to record anything. Uh, some of the big complexities there have to do with, you know, the crowds and the sort of and some of some of the sort of grimy city stuff. You know, we did some outdoor recordings of people kind of yelling from a distance, so that we could have that in the apartment, have it kind of sound like you kind of have people who you can't really understand, but there's just kind of yelling outside, you know, and it's it's subtle stuff, and 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 you can't really necessarily hear it all in if you try to pick it out, but it's all in there, you know. So so there's a each movie ends up having this specific stuff you know stars born had crowds in the dialogue because they had the crowds talking and yelling inside the dialogue you know so you, you end up having this you know just variety of problems and and you just i guess that's where i said you know you have this puzzle to solve like what do i have to fix how do i fix it what will they let me fix in what way what do, what do i suggest you know to them to see if they'll do it well mentioning a star is born i think that the dialogue editing on that is truly outstanding was most of that done as a live recording or did you have a chance to do a lot of adr on that project no, again, uh, you know, and you can pretty much count on that. If the director is an actor, there's not going to be a lot of ADR. <laughs> uh, no, uh, he was very much against doing uh, ADR. And again, this is pretty common. The, the Mad Max scenario is unusual. Um, so it's it's all production. And, you know, look, it's a great sounding movie in dialogue, and I have to tell you that that's not all my doing. You have a incredibly talented dialogue mixer who I hand my work to, mm-hmm. and then he, you know, can do more to reduce the noise and make it all work together. So it's definitely you know, a team effort. We always talk about, like, how would anybody really analyze you know, the dialogue editing or the mixing or, you know, how do you compare it from project to project? You really literally have to listen before and after each step, you know, to actually hear. But anyways, um, I was proud of the work on that, and I thought that the mixing was top-notch. And both uh, sounds Star is Born and Joker, uh, same guy, uh, and someone I hope to work with again. 
What are the differences that you notice between uh, doing dialogue for television and doing dialogue for film? Or because television is so cinematic right now, do you see a difference at all? Well, uh, you know, for me, and this is just my experience with TV, the, the HBO stuff that I worked on, you know, they had such high standards that they were, in a way, wanting a film job on television, you know. And I, and I know that that's not necessarily true in episodic television, say, for CBS or something, you know, so... When you go through on on a CBS show or something like that, uh, or pilot season where you're just cranking out uh, TV, you just don't have the time. It's that same old just uh, do it down and dirty kind of thing. It's like when we in the movies do a temp mix, you know, I have to get through a lot. I get to get through the whole movie sometimes in two weeks to two, three weeks, get through the whole movie, you know, and get some version of it onto the stage, and they have to do a down dirty temp mix in a couple days, and, you know, and then they play it for an audience to see how it's playing, and then they change it. You know, it's not like the movie just goes through this straight line process. I don't know if that is known, but, you know, they do an an edit of it, a picture edit of it, and then they play it for an audience or even their friends and family kind of audience, and then they cut it to shreds, and we redo the sound job, and then they maybe play it for some people, and then they cut it to shreds. You know, it's it's this iterative process, and again, in TV, that doesn't happen. You just, the cut is the cut. You very quickly do the sound job and then you mix it. And, and in the HBO shows, there weren't a lot of uh, iterations. It was pretty much here's the episode, um, make it sound really good, and, uh, and go into a mix, which was more like a final mix, but uh, somewhat streamlined because there was a there was an air date, you know, you've got that air date issue um, mm-hmm. that you don't have uh, week after week after week of doing an episode of episode of, uh, it's a little different that way, you know, to schedule wise. The good news is you can get overwhelmed in any of these. <laughs> Depends <laughs> on the situation. Well, you- and the budget you know, dictates whether you're going to help or not and whether you have to just not do the quality that you want to do. You know, like in so many things, you may have to give up some quality if you can't uh, get help. You've done some animating, uh, some animated features like Kung Fu Panda 3 and Scoob. Would you say that it's easier to do an animated feature than a live-action one in uh, on your end? Um... Depends on the company and the schedule. I mean, Kung Fu Panda was very well organized, and there weren't a lot of hitches. Scoob had a few more hitches in terms of late-arriving um, animation. You know, animation coming in later. It had more issues with uh, lip sync. You know, so it just, again, depends. I mean, yes, it's 
recorded on a AER stage, potentially all of it, so it doesn't have inherent recording problems most of the time, but there can be other problems. Moving back into music for a moment, did you find that it was easy when you started Awkward uh, to have another two-piece bass band this time? Or was, or, or was there another set of issues trying to get back into the dual bass again? Well, I mean, I was doing, uh, you know, Dose went all the way through. He, we're just both busy. So, I mean, I, I, I met, had met Devin some years back, and we were kind of fans of each other's works. And then uh, because I have had a two-bass band, it was just, it kind of, uh, he actually played, I think he played solo at a, at a Dose record release party and we got to talking about maybe doing something and uh and no i mean it was uh, it's become somewhat how i think i mean a lot of my songs the ones i was telling you about my quote-unquote solo stuff that i've been working on for the last 10 15 years it's got two bases on it and other stuff here and there it's got some guitar maybe or whatever it's got other stuff but a lot of it is two bass oriented because i think that when i started thinking about two bass in 1986 when i moved to connecticut because i was making recordings of bedtime stories for my nephews and i would do these two bass overdubs because they were, uh, one of my nephews had trouble sleeping when I would babysit him when I was a kid. So I would make these cassettes because I moved away for a year and I wanted him not to forget me. You know, so this goes way back for me. Those started with some of those songs that I had written in those days. So I just love the bass. I like the intertwining days, and, and that made sense with Awkward. Now, the cool thing of, is, of course, when you introduce a different player, you know, chemistry is chemistry. is a totally different chemistry working with Devin than it is with Mike. So you've got this guy, you know, coming up with his own ideas and styles, and, and he came up with this some we worked on some of his songs, and I wrote parts to that, that, and he wrote parts to some of my songs, and then I wrote his part on some, you know, we just had all the the different configurations, and, and we did end up posting a, a band camp for that, because Devin actually bothered to do the work, so... What do you make of all the band documentaries coming out these days? Is it flattering when you're asked to do things like American Hardcore and We Gem Econo? Or do you think that there's other bands from that time that we should maybe be looking at more? Well, I, I you know, look, I, it's, it's always going to be weird to me because punk rock was so tiny back then. And now, you know, I, I always think, you know, are people really interested in what was going on then, you know, does, is it flattering? Of course it's flattering to be asked to do an interview, whether it's this interview or, or any interviews, you know, I, uh, I, I support the idea of people 
being creative and that documentary is their creative expression of something that matters to them, you know, I assume. So, so I've got no, uh, stake in it. Sometimes something comes out and it's not how I look at back then or whatever, or they do an interview with me and they, you know, take things out of context and, small little piece and I go well that's weird that's that's not really how I you know but hey um as overall say it's kind of fun that these days punk is so big I mean it's it's hilarious to have you know I'll be working I had this experience where I was working on a movie and I was I had been working on the movie for some time, and uh, but I was sitting on the ADR stage one day, and uh, the ADR technician guy basically came out of the booth, and he came by and said, I just wanted to say, you know, I really like what you did, you know, back in the days and everything, you know. And he goes back up into the booth, and the director leans over to me and goes, oh, yeah, I wanted to say the same thing. You know, I really <laughs> admire what you And it was like, what? You know, it's it's weird, right? To have because there's this obvious hierarchy, and so he had never said anything. Or I don't know if that's why, but he had never said anything. And then, you know, and then he expresses, you know, a positive thing from something which again happened so long ago, right? So it's my life has been very busy since then. It feels like on this end. Not that I have any regrets at all, but that was way back then. <laughs> and, and so now we're here, and it's like, that's really big. And it's, I always think I'm not famous, I'm kind of infamous in that way. It's just this sort of, most people who are like, wow, you were in Black Flag, don't know what Black Flag sounds like or don't know any songs right it's a, it's an infamy it's a and that's nothing against them there's a sort of notoriety rather than a specific musical interest and so i think getting asked to do some of those things comes from that and and makes it a little strange if you know what i mean mm-hmm. making any sense yep of course well, speaking of moving on, what can we expect from you coming up? Did you have anything in the can before the pandemic hit? Well, Goop finished March 18th, and we all got sent home from the lot. So the timing of that was, you could say good or bad, depending. It, it was able to come out in some in an online form but it meant that I wasn't in the middle of things so well some of my friends got some working from home type work um I did not I did not have anything sort of lined up uh and and the things I thought I had lined up have not um even started yet so you know, it's beginning to look like there's going to be a, a gap there. I have a maybe I have a penciled in animated show starting in December, but that'll be the largest gap I've had in a long time if it goes from end of March to December. So we'll see in terms of my work and in terms of my 
music, um, like it's that huge stuff happening. I may I'm gonna I'm working on this Bandcamp page for my friend, and uh, and mixing is kind of something that's brand new for me. So that's got its own challenges, you know, to mix. This material is is pretty rock oriented. It's got drums, guitar, you know, bass my bass but you know two guitars a lot of times vocals you know so it's it's mixing stuff um, and trying to create mixes that he's happy with so it's a that's kind of a new creative challenge for me and my goal is to get up a set of songs that he loves so that will be exciting uh, for me to do anyway and then I'm also pushing my own set of solo records that no one will ever hear so do that well Kira I like to thank you so much in my humble opinion your bass line and slip it in is the reason that that is one of the if not the most important albums in the history of music not only punk rock so it means a lot for a lot to me that you came on here today and I hope everybody just takes a moment and listens to the dialogue and films and, and hopefully gets to hear your work the way that I hear your work from here on in. Thank you again so much. Well, thank you, and have a great day, and take care of yourself out there. You too. Thank you. Thank you for listening. It was an absolute honor to speak with Kira Rossler, and I hope everyone takes some time and revisits some of her work, because it is truly some of the best bass tones on record and some of the finest dialogue editing in recent times. This concludes our broadcast day.